So while you're finding the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, I'll tell you a story just to fill in the time while you're finding the book of Hebrews. For we live, the, the, the geese, they fly south for the winter time because in that part of the world, up where we live, winter gets pretty severe sometimes. So on our, the place we have, we have, a, we have a pond and sometimes the geese swoop down and they land in the pond on their way south down to wherever they go in Tennessee or Mississippi or Alabama, I don't know where. So all the way around the, the all the way around the bank of our of our pond, it's just littered with frogs. And in the summertime, you, we go out there and we can see there's just frogs everywhere. But I think in the wintertime they must burrow into the mud or something and hibernate because because I don't see them when they're out there. Well, anyhow, last week about six or seven of the geese just kind of swooped in and settled down on on my pond. And one of the little frogs came out and he said, are, are you guys flying south for the winter? And, and they said, yeah. He said, listen, I just can't stand any more winter times in Kansas. Can I, can I go south with you? They said, well, <laughs> I don't know how that would work. Uh, we're, we're flying. And he said, well, I've come up with an idea. He said, could I get a couple of yous to one of you would get a stick about this long. One of you grab the stick on this end with your beak, and one of you grab the stick on this end with your beak, and I'll get a hold of that with my strong jaw. And you take off, and we'll just fly down to the south. Well, they thought that was a kind of a novel thing, so they said, okay. So the next morning, they got, uh, they got a stick, and one of the geese grabbed it there, and one of the geese grabbed it there, and the little frog grabbed a hold of the thing, and off they went, right off of my pond, right over there, and they were headed south. They got about 500 feet in the air. And my next door neighbor, Mrs. Sorensen, looked up and she says, well, look at that. Whose idea was that? Mine, said the frog. <laughs> Those of you that are not laughing, you didn't get it. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now Romans chapter 8, if you would please. 
Romans chapter 8. Verse 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now for our text, find Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter, see how shiny that page is? That's because you haven't greased it up with your dirty hands from reading it. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 66, verse 12. For thus saith the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. And then shall you suck. You shall be borne upon her sides and be dandled upon her knees. As one whom his father comforteth, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb, and the hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants, and his indignation toward his enemies. My Father, I pray that this morning, through these few minutes that we have, that you'd be pleased to encourage your people to bless them, to make them know that you're not an absentee landlord, but that, Father, you're watching over us and you're caring for us and taking care of us. If you'll do that despite my rantings, I'll be thankful for it and ask you to do it. In Jesus' dear name, amen. You know, I want to say to you this morning that the Bible is just a warm letter of affection from a parent to a child. Yet there's lots and lots of people who see only the passage of God's Word that just speaks severely. We might have 60 or 70 days, summer nights of gentle dew, and, and maybe a half an hour of heavy rain, and, and, and the rain will bring far more remarks and comments than the refreshing dew, and just so. Just so God's word is filled with notations and expressions of his affections. And lots and lots of folks just ignore them. And they search for those things that express his indignation. Out of two or three hundred pieces of mail that come in the box, I don't think there's any of them that cause the pulse to beat like the ones that come from the IRS or some other ominous governmental agency. And just so, you know, there are people that do not comforted by the mercies of God, they're thrown into turmoil and consternation and fear at those verses in God's word that speak of the wrath of God. They read where John said in the book of Revelation that God's a lion, and, and then Micah say, announces that God is a breaker, God's a rock, and God's a king, and God's a consuming fire. But beloved, God is also love. 
Father and his child, they're out there in the middle of the field walking on a summer day, and there comes a, there comes a thunderstorm, and the lightning just flashes across the sky in fork and tongues, and it startles the child, and the father says, oh, that's God's eye. Then the thunder rolls across the sky, and the father said, oh, and that's God's voice. And then the clouds go off the sky and the wind blows the storms away and bright sunlight floods the, he the, the heaven and the landscape. And the f father just forgets to say, and that's God's smile. And so today I want to just bring you a text that just bends with great gentleness. Bends with love over everybody that's hurt with sin and with heartache and with trouble and you know, in the past year, there's just been hurt, and there's been sorrow, and there's been agony, and there's been disease, and there's been prohibitions, and there's been all sorts of things that bring fear and turmoil and wonder into people's hearts. Our text this morning just shines with compassion. It melts with tenderness. It breathes with the hush of an eternal lullaby. It declares to us that God comforts with a mother's heart. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I, he said, comfort you. And I want you to just settle down on those words then that promise like a, like a sponge in a bowl of water and just soak it up. I want to say to you then in the first place that God instructs us with great simplicity you know, fathers are not any good at all teaching the ABCs. But a mother with so much patience, she'll, she'll just sit in the primary department and she'll, she'll tell a little boy or a little girl for the hundredth time the difference between F and G and, and between I and L. Wasn't your first grade teacher probably a lady? Little kids in there in the primary classes, most of their teachers are and they're ladies. Sometimes they teach by block, sometimes with flashcards sometimes with a textbook and sometimes up, up on the blackboard. And she teaches, and she feels no stooping of herself to come all the way down to his level in order to get them to, uh, to understand. Beloved, I want to tell you this morning that that's our God. Like a mother, he just stoops himself right down to our infantile minds. You and I might be told and reminded of something for the thousandth time and still we don't understand it. Our great motherly God just goes on line upon line and precept upon precept here a little and, and, and there a little. You know, God has been teaching some of us 10 years and 20 years and 50 years and some of us 60 years one word of just one syllable and we don't know it yet. F-A-I-T-H. Faith. We're to live by faith. Yet when we come to that word, we stammer and we stumble and we're not very good at it and we halt and we lose our place and we pronounce it wrong and, and we don't trust and we don't believe and we go on depending upon ourselves and going our way, doubting and worrying and fretting about circumstances. But still God's patience is not worn out. Just like a heavenly mother, he puts us in the school of prosperity. 
And the letters are all sunshine, but we can't spell them and everything's going good and so we get proud and independent and then we think that we don't need him and we act like we're okay on our own. We don't need the things of God. So he puts us in the school of adversity and, and the letters are black and we can't spell them and we become angry and sullen and discouraged. And, and you know, if God was just a ruler, he'd punish us for our disobedience. If it's just a father, only a father, he'd whip us for our lack of trust, but God's a motherly comforter. So he puts his arms around us and he bears with us and he helps us all the way through with infinite patience for his children as he teaches us the way and the walk of faith. A mother guides and teaches by picture and illustration. If she wants to show the evil of a mean spirit, <clears throat> she doesn't lecture. She just shows a picture of boys fighting. And she said, that's an awful thing to do. And if she wants to know the sinfulness and the hurt as the result of drugs and alcohol in today's life, she holds up pictures of smashed cars and accident scenes and hospital scenes and battered, butchered bodies and murdered children and different things like that. And she said, that's what happens when you have get involved in drugs and alcohol. And a child seeing those, uh, the pictures and listening to those stories, they can understand it because, because the picture is worth a thousand words. And just so, just so, God is a, as a mother, he teaches his dear children almost everything by pictures. How does God show his goodness to us? Well, with an autumn picture. Trees that are full of red apples, barns that are full of new hay, cattle just laying down and chewing their cud lazily in the warm sun, the natural world busy all summer, it's resting, showing <clears throat> the plenter that has come from the harvest. We look at the picture and we say, thou crownest the ear with thy goodness and thy paths drop fatness. How does God show that in the judgment the wicked are going to be separated from the godly? Well, with the picture. A group of strong men, they're standing up at the waist in the water, sleeves are all rolled up, and that boat looking as battered as though the storm had just used it for a toy, and the net is full, jumping around full of thrashing fish that have just now discovered that they are captives, the suckers and the bass and the trout all in one big net, and the fishermen put their hands right down in the midst of all of those swarming fins, and they take out the keepers and they leave the rest of be destroyed. It's just another picture. It's a picture of the saved and the lost and the dragnet. God wants to show us a picture of his love and compassion. So he drew another picture. There's a human form. A mass of cuts and wounds down, hurt and bleeding on the road to Jericho. A traveler's been fighting a robber. And the robber stabbed him and he knocked him down. Two well-known preachers came along and they looked over at the poor guy go across the other street and they pass by on the other side. And then a traveler comes along, he's a Samaritan, and he says, ho, to his donkey or his horse or whatever it is he's riding, and he dismounts and he examines the wounds and he takes out some wine to, to wash the cuts and he takes some soothing oil and he puts that to take away the stinging and then he uses his own clean shirt, he tears it up to make a bandage. Then he helps that wounded man up on his beast and he walks beside him, holding him on, propping him up until they come to a motel and he says to the owner, now here's some money to take care of this man for two days. You just take care of him and if it costs more, when I come back, I'll pay the bill. Picture the Good Samaritan or 
Who's the helper? Does God in a motherly fashion want to show us what a foolish thing it is to go wrong from the right and, and then he shows us how glad mercy is to take back the wanderer? How does he do it? Well, with the picture. A good farmer. A large farm. An obedient and a faithful father. Sheep and oxen and new cars and fine clothes and lots of good stuff. And, and a discontented boy. He resents authority. He doesn't like the rules. And so he goes away. He gets conned. He gets cheated in town. He ends up feeding the hogs and he gets homesick and and he starts for home and he looks up and he sees an old man running down the lane toward him. It's father. And the boy's hand torn by the corn husks gets a ring. And the foot all inflamed and swollen and cracked and bleeding gets a soft sandal. The bare shoulders showing bruises through that tattered shirt gets a robe. And the stomach that's been aching with Hunger gets a full platter of the best cuts. Father can't eat. He's just filled with looking at his boy. Tears of joy are just streaming down his cheeks until they become a great big smile. The night dew has melted into, into bright morning. No work on the farm that day because God knows and that father knows when a bad boy repents and he comes back sorrowing and confessing and promising to do better. A father knows that that's enough for one day and and they began to be merry. Picture. Prodigal son returned from the wilderness. And so you see, God in motherly fashion teaches us by pictures. The sinner, he's a lost sheep. The Lord Jesus is a bridegroom. The church is a bride. Satan is a sower of tears, tares. Faith is a mustard seed. So do you see, beloved, that we could not understand in the abstract God teaching as would a loving mother. He gives us our lessons in a Bible album full of pictures. I want to take another thought. I think that just like mothers, God's got a mother's favoritism. Sometimes in families, the, the father has a favorite, maybe a gifted son to take into the, into the business or a talented son who excels at sports or some things like that. And there are some cultures that favor one of the children to the exclusion of the rest of them. But that's a robbery. That's a cruelty. But they are not the mother's favorites. I'll tell you which one is. He had a fall when he was two years old and then never got over it. And, the asthma keeps him from breathing properly. He's not just what he used to be. And that child has caused his mother more sleepless nights than all of the others put together. If he wheezes in the night, she springs out of a, out of a sound sleep and she goes to him. And the last thing that she does when she goes to town to shop is to order the other kids to keep an eye on him. And the first thing she does when she gets home is she's to ask how he is and where he's at and what he's doing. Beloved, all of the children in the family know full well that he is her favorite. And they say, Mom, you let him do what he wants and, and you give him things that we don't get. He's your favorite. And she just smiles because she knows that it's true. And he ought to be. If there's anybody in all of the world that needs some sympathy more than another, it's an invalid child, weary and, 
helpless from his first smile on life's journey, carrying a naked, aching head or a paralysis or weak lungs or autism. So the mother ought to make him a favorite. Do you know that our great motherly God has got favorites? Bible tells us whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And how true that is, I think, of those that he especially loves. God loves all of his children, but, but is there one that is sick and weak and sore and wounded and faint? That's the one that lies closest to his heart and more perpetually on the great loving the things and thoughts of God. He never coughs, but that God is a mother. He just hears it. He never raises a weary arm, but that God as a mother sees. There is no such watcher as God. Beloved, listen, when you're in trouble, you can be absolutely certain that he's there. He's on the watch. You can listen. He can hear and he knows what's going on. The very best world's nurses <clears throat> might be overcome with fatigue and fall asleep in the chair, but our great God wondrous and loving after hovering for a year of nights over a suffering child never slumbers never never sleeps you can depend upon that promise I will never leave thee Amen. nor forsake thee somebody says but preacher I just don't understand why it is that a Christian has to suffer maybe you're here and you feel that way today why is it that, that a Christian always has to take it in the neck you know, a long time ago, there was a man who used to make silver ingots for me from melted down coins. I, I don't know if you know anything about silver coins, but from 1964 and backwards, they were 90% silver. And from 1965, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 70, they were 40% silver. I, I collect coins. And I had a gob of those 40 percenters. They're called clads. And there was a man who used to make silver ingots for me out of those melted down clad coins. And I said, how do you how do you do that? He says, well, I just put the silver in the fire. And I keep refining it and I'm removing the dross, all the impurities, and trying it until I can see my own face reflected in it like a mirror. And then I take it out. It only needs to be in the fire and in the heat for so long until the job gets completed. And then I take it out. And beloved, just so and how it is with God, he keeps his dear children into the furnace until his own image is seen in them. And then they're removed from the fire. Well, I hear somebody say, you know what? If that's the way God teaches favorites, I don't want to be a favorite. I would rather be left alone. Would you really? Would you, would you really? There's a barren field on an autumn day that just wants to be left alone. <clears throat> But then there comes the roar of the diesel engines and the hookup at the three-point hitch and the field says, what in the world is that farmer going to do to me? And then the bottom plow sinks into the earth and the tachometer runs up to 2,500 and the coulter just tears through the sod and the furrow reaches from fence to fence and next day there's a rattle and there's a bang and the disc goes slicing and cutting their way across that field and the next day after that more machinery shows up and the field wonders what in the world is he going to do to me? now that great big John Deere tractor rolls over the broken cut field and it pulls the drill dropping the wheat into the 
uniform spaced rows and then after a while a cloud rolls up and the field says what's going on more trouble and then it begins to rain and then the wind changes to the northeast and it begins to snow and it's just cold and the field says man isn't it enough isn't it enough that I have been cut and I've been trampled and I've been walked on and I've been punched full of holes and I've been drenched and I have been drowned do I now have to be snowed under <clears throat> then after a while the spring comes out of the gates of the south and brings warmth and brings gladness with it and you can see just a spreading green scarf that makes a bandage for the gash and cut of the wheat field and later on in the year the June harvest and the morning places a crown of gold on the head of that ripened grain. Oh, said the field, I got it. Now I know why that cutting plow and the slicing disc and the harrow and the drill. Now I understand that heavy foot and the showers and the snowstorm. It's just okay with me to be walked on and trampled and drowned and snowed under if if in the end I can yield such a marvelous harvest. Now, beloved, listen to me with both of your ears. When I see that God is especially busy troubling and trying some of you, I know that out of your character is going to come that's especially, specially good. Didn't we read and say, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth? and scourges everyone that he receives. You know, when the crew goes to the quarry and drills down into the rock, the wreck says, hey, hey, what are you doing to me? And then goes in the, the powder and the fuse, and the fuse is lit, and there's a thunderous crash, and the face of the quarry surges, and the rock and the, and the whole thing says, I'm absolutely coming apart. This thing is tearing me up. And I think there probably have been times in your life when you felt that things were tearing you up, everything was going to explode and come apart, and your hopes were ruined, and your desires were shattered, and everything that you wanted to come to pass simply did not, and it seemed like everything was falling apart and all of your work. And then that stone gets dragged out, and hauled to the sculptor's studio and it says now this is more like it man I got a place it's warm and dry and it's comfortable at last ah but then in comes the sculptor and he's got his chisel and he's got his mallet in his hand and he digs for the eyes <coughs> and he cuts for the mouth and he bores for the ear and he rubs it with sandpaper until that rock just feels like screaming when in the world is this torture going to be over? Will it never, never end? And then a sheet is thrown over the thing and it stands in darkness and it feels all alone like it's just been abandoned. <clears throat> After a while it's taken out and the covering is removed and it stands in the sunlight in the presence of 10,000 applauding people. And they see the statue of the statesman or the hero. Ah, said the stone, now I understand. I'm a lot better off after what I thought was abuse than I ever could have been if I'd been left alone in the quarry. No chastening seemed to be joyous, but grievous nevertheless. Nevertheless, after, afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them that are exercised thereby. So God finds a man in the quarry of ignorance and sin. How did he get him up? 
Well, he has to be bored and blasted and chiseled and scoured, and sometimes he has to stand in the darkness. But after a while, that sheet, that covering of affliction and trouble, it'll fall off, and his soul will be greeted by millions and millions of people that have gone through similar exercise and trials. Beloved, don't you understand that as a motherly God, he loves you just as much and he is just as kind to us as ever, ever, ever in our afflictions or and in our prosperities. God never touches you but for your good. We know that all things, we don't hope, we don't guess, we don't pretend. We know all things work together for good to them that love God. If a field that is filled with ripening grain is better than empty one, if a stone that has become a statue is better than one left in the quarry, then that soul chastened by God is one upon whom he has lavished his affection and his love. The worst of all afflictions is to never have been afflicted by God. Do you want God never to deal with you? Do you want God never to talk to you? Do you want God never to pay attention to you? Do you want God to leave you alone? The rocking of your soul is not an earthquake. It's just the rocking of God's cradle. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you. You know that the pearl in an oyster is the result of a wound. And it just may be that the brightest of the precious stones in heaven will have come out of the wounds of earth. Now I think further that God's got a mother's capacity to look after little hurts. The father is absolutely quickly moved at a broken leg or if that little one there in the cradle or in the crib is on fire with the fever. But it takes a mother to sympathize with the little cuts and scrapes and falls and slivers. The little boy, the little girl comes in kind of sniffling and father says, ah, be all right, don't worry about it. Mama says, oh, let me put a Band-Aid on that. Nothing in the world like a mama's hug and a Band-Aid. You know, to a little one, a little hurt might be a big hurt. And like mothers, God is concerned with everything that hurts and annoys us. God never says, oh, don't worry about it. Go on about your business. Play it. It's going to go away. Don't bother me. He gives his complete, devoted attention to our every trouble. Bible says that he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Every wound of the soul, no matter how insignificant, God is willing to bind it up as a mother comforteth her children, so will I comfort you. There is no detail of your life that's trivial or unimportant to the Lord. He says you can cast all of your trials, all your troubles, all of your cares on him because he cares for you. I think there's something else that we learn from our text. I think that we see that God's got a mother's patience with a child in trouble. If he does wrong, his friends leave him. If he continues, his business associates cut him off. 
if he just keeps going on, his best friends quit seeing him, and then his father disowns him. But after a while, there isn't anybody left, so where can he go? Who in the world is it that doesn't hold a grudge, who will forgive as fully <clears throat> the last time as much as the first time? Who sets behind him when he's on trial for murder? Who, when everybody else in all of the world has cut him off, thinks about him and prays for him all the time? It's his mother. God bless her gray hairs if she's alive. God bless her grave if she's dead. And God bless her rocking chair and the cradle she rocked and the Bible she read. And beloved, it was God who wrote mother love in her heart from the letters out of her, out of her own. You know, we're instructed to kids are to love their parents. There is nothing in God's word that says a mother is to love her children. That's because God wrote it on her heart. He didn't have to put it on paper. He's got a patience for those that are in sin. When everybody else has abandoned a man, our God comes to the rescue. He just leaps to take charge of a bad situation. After all of the earthly doctors have quit, the great physician steps in. You know, you know human sympathy is pretty poor sometimes. Even Christian sympathy lots of times doesn't amount to very much. I've seen bitter, listen to me, I've seen bitter treatment handed out to brothers and sisters that have fallen or were wavering. And that treatment came from those who professed to know Christ as Savior the loudest. For those that said when they themselves needed it most that God forgave and cleansed them, then they themselves have opened the valve of sarcasm and criticism and gossip and tattletale and censure and pour it out on a brother or sister that's in need of help and sympathy and all that. So the one thing they never tried was understanding of forgiveness. But God does it all the time. A man's sins might seem like the North American continent, but God's grace and forgiveness is like the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean bounding it on both sides. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all of my sins. How shall my tongue describe it? Where does its praise begin? You know, the Bible talks a lot about God's hand. I wonder what it looks like. Do you remember what your mama's hands used to look? Do you remember it was different from your father's? When it was time for punishment, who'd you rather have whip you, mother or father? Well, it just didn't hurt as much. And father's hand was different than mother's, partly because it worked outside and because God intended it to be different. The knuckles were more firmly set and the palm had calluses. Do you remember mother's hand, it was delicate? There was blue veins that were running through the back of it. Remember how soft Mama's hands were on the palm and on her fingers? They were always soft. Remember how it could just take the pain out of a wound? Do you remember how it was when Mama put you on her lap and just put her arm around you and hugged her close and tight to herself? Beloved, God's hands like a Mama's hand when it touches, it heals. And if it strikes you, it doesn't hurt the same as if it was another harsher or harder hand. When I do wrong, I want God to deal with me, not my enemies. 
And I don't know, maybe you could be here with us yet today and you're wandering yet in your sins. Or maybe you're saved and you've backslidden, gone away from God. I want you to know something. It's not a sheriff's hand that you feel touching you right now. It's not a hard hand. It's not an unfeeling, uncaring, unsympathetic hand. It's not a cold hand. It's not an enemy's hand. No. No, it's a gentle hand, a loving hand, a sympathetic hand, a soft hand. Loving as a mother's hand. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you. Our brother spoke this, spoke this morning about in Sunday school about those that have perhaps left their first love. Their enthusiasm has been dampened. Their zeal for God and for the things of God have sort of been pushed off to the, off to the side. The Lord just simply wants you to give that thing up, to leave it alone. And to come back to him for cleansing and for restoration and for, and for forgiveness. Well, our time is gone and I just want to say finally that God's got a mother's way of putting a child to sleep. You know, there isn't any voice like a mother's voice humming or singing a little one to sleep. And after an exciting evening at the house, there's hardly anything, no, almost no getting him to go to sleep. If the rocking chair stops, you remember those little eyes, they'll just pop absolutely wide open. But mama's patience and soothing manner just keeps on until after a while, sleep, sweet slumber takes its place on the pillow. If the Lord tarries, I pray he won't. I wish he'd come in raptures right now. But if the Lord tarries, the time is coming for us to go to sleep. The day of our life will be done. The shadows of the night of death will be gathering around us. And then we want God to soothe us. Then we want God to hush us to sleep. I don't want the music of my going to be the organ or the church bell. Just the hush of a motherly lullaby. I want the cradle of your grave to be soft with the pillow of all of the promises of God. We're being rocked to sleep in that last slumber. I want this to be my cradle song. As one whom a mother comforteth, so will I comfort you. I want God to gently put me to sleep, don't you? I read a story one time about an old Scotsman who was dying. And his daughter Nellie was at his bedside. It was Sunday night. And the church bell was ringing and calling all the people to church. And that old man in his dying dream, he heard the bell and he thought he was on the way to church. He said, hurry children, we're going to be late. Then he said, quick. Quick now, we'll soon be there. Then he smiled and he said, here we are now. No wonder he smiled. That good old man had got to church. Not to the old country church, but waiting angels had escorted him into the temple of the skies, just, just across the river. How comfortably did God hush that old man to sleep. 
as one whom his mother comforteth. So God comforted him. The Lord said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Real rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He said, I am meek and lowly in heart. And you find rest unto your souls. My yoke's easy. And my burden's light. You know, beloved, it's easy to thank God for blessings. But we kind of forget to thank him when trouble and trial and tribulation and difficulty come into our path. Don't you train and discipline your children, not, not because you feel good about pinching them or whipping them or hurt. Don't you discipline them for their own good? Don't you want them to grow to be right and honorable and prosperous? Don't you want them to be, don't you want them to be good citizens? That's why you discipline, not because you like to do that. You don't punish your kids because you like to. You only punish them. You, the only punish them. It's their fault. You, they force you to do it by disobedience. Amen. Well, listen. God does the same thing to you for your good. Amen. No chastening for the present seemed to be joyous, happy, satisfying, comforting, but it's grievous. Nevertheless, afterward. Afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness, not to everybody, but to them which are extra, to those that pay attention, to those that learn. We need to learn to acknowledge his hand dealing with us every single situation that we're in because he's conforming us. As our brother said this morning in Sunday school, not to get nice houses or nice cars or nice jobs or nice education or stocks and bonds. He's conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be useful. That we might be citizens of heaven but sojourners on this earth and witnesses of his grace. I don't know. There could be, there could be somebody in this house right now with no assurance of heaven with no assurance of God's comfort. I can't leave this pulpit until I point you to Jesus Christ. He made heaven and safety possible for you. He made, he paid the price of admission to heaven for you. Amen. Got it? He paid the price of admission to heaven for you. He paid what you owe God. Do you know what keeps you out of heaven? It's not joining a church. It's not getting baptized. And it's not even memorizing those verses. It's not singing those songs, though we love all of that stuff. Well, it's sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And though you may be laden with sins, top to bottom and front to back and from the beginning to the end of your life, those things won't keep you out of heaven. Listen, if sin kept you out of heaven, nobody would go to heaven. Raise your hand if you've not sinned. You see, sins don't keep you out of heaven. You ever think about that? I'll tell you what keeps you out of heaven. It's not trusting Jesus Christ as the payment for those sins. 
Everybody in, everybody in heaven today is, has sinned their lives away to, for all practical purposes. It's not trusting Jesus Christ. God said that if you will believe that Jesus Christ paid your sin debt, he'll forgive you and give you eternal life. That's comfort. That's the comfort that only God could give. And if you don't have that comfort, I would urge you, I would beseech you to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Then the knowledge of heaven and security and salvation would be yours, both for today and for forever. He said that he'll comfort you. He'll give you peace in your heart that if you were to die today, heaven and eternity would be yours forever.